Father, thank you for this morning and the chance we have to assemble together. Thank you for your wisdom in calling us uh, to this weekly time of, of gathering together with brothers and sisters, being fed by your word, corporate worship, uh, mutual encouragement, and ministry. I pray that this time now, this Bible for Life class would be helpful uh, as we seek to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. Give me clarity and all of us just uh, receptive hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we've got a handout here. We're trying to get through um, my book, uh, Infinite Journey, um, in four weeks. So this is week three. So we have to go at a good pace um, and just kind of define what spiritual maturity looks like to give us something to aim for. That's the goal. Uh, there's lots of details. I would welcome at any moment uh, folks interrupting to make a comment or ask a question. I would enjoy that. Um, um, you know, anything that, that triggers you could be helpful for others. So go ahead and raise your hand and make a comment. On the front uh, of the handout, there's an overview, uh, basically, of the, of the whole book uh, with some kind of pithy statements uh, in this pattern, Maturing Christians Develop. So I, I chose that uh, because it's a kind of process language. We are not going to achieve perfect Christ-like likeness in this world, but we are aiming for it. And we're moving in that direction. So every one of these subcategories uh, is going to be, for all of us, a work in progress. Um, but this is kind of a summary of the entire book. Four areas, knowledge, faith, character, and action. M maturing Christians develop in the knowledge area a wide-ranging and deep knowledge of the Bible. How do they do that? They read the Bible. <laughs> and they go to church, and they hear sermons, and they read Christian books, and they work at it every day. For decades and decades, you just learn the Bible. There's a lot to learn. And uh, the more I've studied it, the more I realize just how true that is. Uh, it's a lifetime study. But maturing Christians develop factual knowledge of the Bible, what's in the Bible. And secondly, a wealth of rich spiritual experiences. Uh, you know, you step out in faith and obedience, and you do certain things, and God teaches you by experience. By the way, that's going to be a major part of my sermon today. Uh, one of the key insights, and I'm just going to give this to you, that... Jesus feels that the disciples should have learned from the two feedings, feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. They should have trusted him based on experience. So what we learn is faith comes by hearing the word, but also faith comes by living the life. And those two are symbiotic. They work together as we read scripture and then as we live and read and live. Uh, that's the basis of faith. Um, so we'll talk about that uh, a little more. Uh, in the sermon today. And then faith, the faith section, uh, five statements. Uh, faith, uh, maturing Christians develop a strong sense of the reality of invisible spiritual truths, past, present, and future. All right, so you just know that the world of the Bible, the historical world of the Bible, actually happened, just as written. It actually occurred. The events of the, of the Exodus actually occurred. The, the uh, history of the kings and, and all that, it really happened. Uh, the prophets really did say the things they did. Uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the fire really did fall from heaven. You really believe all of it's true. And especially the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Factually true. Historically true. And you really believe it. And then present. Invisible spiritual reality is present. God on his throne. Almighty God seated on his throne. As though you can see him. As seeing him who is invisible. Uh, Faith-filled people just have a vivid sense of invisible spiritual realities. Like they can see them. Even though they don't see them. You just know it's true. 
and you just know that Christ is at the right hand of God is interceding for you. You know that there are angels, there are demons, there are departed saints that are absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're in the presence of the Lord now, filled with joy and, and, and worshiping him. All of those things are true, present, and future. Um, the, fu the, world, the future world as described in scripture is definitely going to happen. Uh, related to that, secondly, uh, vibrant hope in a bright future uh, based on the promise of God. So that's to some degree covered in the first bullet, but zeroes in on, on things you hope for. Assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11, 1 tells us. And so you have a strong sense that the good things that God has promised you in Scripture are definitely going to happen. And so you're filled with hope. That makes you a very positive person. Uh, not just power of positive thinking, but based on the promises of God, you know that the future is bright. And that's very attractive in a hopeless world. Because Ephesians says that non-Christians are without hope and without God in the world. And so we have an eternal hope. And we're radiant with hope. So maturing Christians develop that. They, they are buoyant in hope. And uh, thirdly, uh, the second half of Hebrews 11.1 1 is conviction of things not seen. And the word, uh, the Greek word there, conviction, means reproof or rebuke for sin. It's, it's, it's specifically tied to sin. Uh, so we use that language of a convicting sermon or I was convicted by what you said, that kind of thing, always has to do with sin. And you are brought up short, you're made to aware, made aware of your shortcomings, you're aware of your sinfulness, and however negative that is, it's essential to sanctification because you need to know what you need to work on. Uh, what are the areas of deficiency in your life? And so the longer you go on in, in your Christianity, the more humble you become in that regard. You're actually expecting that the Holy Spirit's gonna be convicting you every day. Uh, you're gonna be repenting all the time. You're not prideful when some brother or sister in Christ comes to you, your spouse comes to you and points something out. You're not saying, no, I didn't. That's not true. You're not doing that. You expect that it is true. You want to find ways you can grow. That's conviction of things not seen. Uh, and what is the thing not seen? I think ultimately Judgment Day, the fact that someday you're going to give God an account for everything you've done in your life. You're aware of that vividly. And so you want to know now while you still have, have time to do something about it. Conviction of things not seen. Uh, now, that's where we stopped last week. I'm just giving over you the whole book now, but we're going to pick up in detail in the next two. A firm and consistent reliance in Christ. What does it mean to rely on Christ? Faith has to do with reliance. Leaning on Christ. So we'll de develop that. I won't say any more right now because we're going to spend time on it. And then a uh, consistent sense of practical guidance by the Holy Spirit. So maturing Christians develop a sense of knowing what God wants them to do in this world. Big picture and in detail. Big picture, you know what you're called to be and to do in this world. You've got a sense of your spiritual gifts, a sense of the mission that God's got for you to do. You're not shooting in the dark. You have no idea, but you're guided. Um, and also in detail, you have a sense of guidance, and we'll talk about that as well. All right, so that's faith. Character, um, character equals heart for me, uh, the inner nature. Uh, Christianity is a heart religion, so we're going to be talking about this whole section today, and that's going to be a challenge to get through all of these, but this is just an overview. A heart that loves what Christ loves and hates what Christ hates. And honestly, I have to tell you that the heart, as it loves and as it hates, I believe is the core of everything. I think it's the, the centerpiece of what God is doing in our salvation, is to transform us at the core of our being so that we love God and we love others. And we're going to spend eternity loving God and loving others. That's the core of our salvation. Um, what we are attracted to and repulsed from to be conformed to God. We'll talk about that today. And then secondly, an array of passionate godly desires that direct uh, daily life. Desire is something you want but don't have. It's related to hope, but it's like, what are you aiming for in life? What do you want? What are you ambitious for? So we'll talk about that today.
And then thirdly, a will that's consistently submissive to the will of God, regardless of the cost. The will is the, that inner part of you, your nature, that makes decisions. It pulls the trigger on things. It, it, it's what you decide to do or what you decide not to do, reject. So we'll talk about that and, and the concept briefly of free will. I'm going to address that a bit. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to give you Christ's attitude in Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but yours be done. That is the pattern of the way Christians should use their will, that we're going to submit our wills to the will of God for us. We'll talk about that. And then a thought life that's pure and excellent. What you think about, your thought life. And so a critical verse for me, Philippians 4, 8, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about those things. A thought life that's conformed to Christ. To think we have the mind of Christ, we should use it. So uh, maturing Christians develop a pure thought life. And then uh, healthy emotional life. Uh, and so we'll talk about emotions. We are emotional beings. God is an emotional God. And uh, to have holy emotions conform to Christ. Christ, uh, we'll talk a little about the emotional life of Jesus. Um, he displays a lot of emotions. And there are appropriate emotions in the Christian life. So we'll talk about that. And then I kind of put a line uh, between those five things I've just described. And then in my mind, virtues is kind of a summation thing. A snapshot of situational, I wouldn't say situational ethics, but situ situ situational heart states. There are different scenarios that come to you providentially, and Jesus dealt with people differently and scenarios differently depending on circumstances and who he's dealing with. And so I would say that's virtues, just being the right person in any and every situation. So we'll talk about that briefly. Character. And then finally, action, which is motion. Uh, it's energetic motion with the body. That's the first three are not motion things. They're all inner heart things. Knowledge, faith, and character are internal, preparatory. But then you have to move out and do things. And so your works are what you choose to do in this world. Uh, the, the motion of the muscles, the motion of the body to, to do things in God's physical world. So what are those actions that God wants from us? Uh, first of all, it all begins with presenting the body as a vehicle of action to God as a living sacrifice, the presentation of the body as ready to serve at every moment, and then negatively, uh, negatively, uh, there are things we must not do. Sanctification is both negative and positive. There are things we must not do. We should be pure from them. We should put them to death. And so we'll talk about those negative areas. Uh, I use the word purity. Uh, there are things we must get rid of out of, the, out of our lives. And so there are four main headings of purity in the Bible when it comes, it comes to sanctification. Sexual purity, speech purity, purity in relationship. By that I mean getting rid of bitterness, unforgiveness, broken relationships, those negative things that defile relationships. And then what I call purity and lawful pleasures, that you would not be addicted to the good things of this life. You'd not be a glutton, a drunkard, uh, or addicted to anything that you like in this world. And that I mean amoral pleasures. Good things that God's given you, but we tend to overindulge. Um, so uh, that, those four areas of purity. And then seven areas of, of action, uh, specific action, um, which we uh, all talk about, a constant habit of personal and corporate worship, uh, daily habits of intake, uh, Bible intake, prayer, uh, confession of sin, those are your daily quiet times, spiritual disciplines, um, and then biblical faithfulness and marriage and parenting, and then uh, blessing other Christians with spiritual gifts and general uh, ministry, 
a regular habit of bold witness to lost people and meeting temporal needs, and then a track record of faithful stewardship and money and generosity to others with your money, um, and then uh, hard work, diligent labor. That's it, all right? Just to say all that is exhausting. And you're like, how in the world can anyone do all that? But I've been looking at this list for years. I don't find any exemption clause on any of them. I don't look at anything I've told you so far this morning as superfluous. Sorry, uh, superfluous. That, that you can say, hey, that's optional in the Christian life. Uh, you can do whatever you want with your sex life, or it doesn't matter if you overindulge, or uh, God doesn't care what you do with your money. You can work on that later or that you, you shouldn't expect to be convicted of sin. I, I can't find any of the things I've said to you this morning uh, that we're exempt from. So what we have to do is we just have to step up and say, Lord, this is a, an overwhelming list uh, of conformity to Christ, but it is my life work. This is the internal journey. This is the holiness I want. And I yearn to go for it. And by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to focus on these things. So I would commend this sheet to you for your personal study. I would commend it to you for your personal prayer. I would urge that you pray it for other people because this the articulation is not perfect. But the concepts are biblical. And they are, it's not hard actually for me to prove each of these from scripture. Um, this is what the Lord commands us, especially in the epistles. You see in the epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Romans. These things are there. And then you say, this is what I really want out of my life and out of the lives of my loved ones. So let me stop now and say any questions before we get into details. No? All sounds, sounds good? You're doing all of them? Sounds great? It's up and running in your life? You're excited about, about all that? Yeah. Um, I feel the same way. Um, but let's move on. Let's look at now at faith. We've already done knowledge, uh, factual, experiential, and then the first three aspects. Now let's look at two, the last two elements of faith, <clears throat> which is reliance on Christ as all-sufficient Savior, refuge, provider, and shield, and then reception of spiritual guidance. All right, faith as reliance. Uh, faith involves a sense of reliance. That is a... A uh, sense of a support or a buttress, the source of your confidence. So when you think about what you rely on, okay, what does that word reliance mean to you? Reliance. Okay, sense of being dependent. Okay. Okay. All right. I, I agree. Say again. There's a foolproof. Foolproof support that's there. Okay. So, support. Good. I, all of that assumes some kind of stressor or challenge in your life in which you're like, what am I going to do? This has come in. Could be a, 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 a medical diagnosis. Could be a financial challenge. Could be problems in the family. And then your mind goes to a buttress or a source of resources and you think about that and you're comforted. <clears throat> That's what reliance is all about. It's like, what are you relying on as you think about the challenge? And the Bible wants you to rely on Jesus. The Bible wants you to think that he will be enough for you. That's the whole problem we're going to see in, in Mark today, where the disciples are arguing about having forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus is like, we're not here for that. 
you should have learned by now, I can take care of that need for you. You're not going to starve to death with me. Focus. Focus on the kingdom. Focus on his righteousness, on the teaching I'm giving you. It's not about what we're going to chew and swallow today. So that's Mark's sermon. We'll get to that, you know, God willing, at the at worship service. But the question is, what are you relying on in life? And the Bible wants you to rely on Jesus, all right? So here are some verses on reliance. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See that, that word lean not, that leaning is reliance language. What are you leaning on? What are you putting your weight on? There it says lean not. So it's like don't trust in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't think I'm a smart guy or I'm a smart gal. I'll figure it out. That's you relying on yourself. You relying on your own understanding instead of relying on God. Again, Isaiah 31 one, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. God is very, was very offended when Israel would seek political, military alliances with pagan nations and forget to ask him for help. God's like, I'm actually really good at fighting. I mean, by now you should have seen that. Remember Jericho? Remember that whole thing? I can do that anytime. I can win battles. Why are you going to Assyria? Why are you going to Egypt with your envoys? Why are you sending money to them to make an alliance? It offends me. So he gets very angry about this, and, and not just in, in Isaiah. In Ezekiel, he's angry. This is a very big problem where they just don't even think about God. They don't rely on him, but they make these horizontal alliances. Ezekiel 29. Then all who live in Egypt will know that I am the Lord. You, Pharaoh, Egypt, have been a staff of reed for the house of Israel. When they grasp you with their hands, you splintered and tore open their shoulders. When they leaned on you, you broke and their backs were wrenched. That's reliance language. See? Israel relied on you, Egypt, and you <coughs> failed them. All right? But the, the real thing here is Ezekiel's concerned about Israel. So he's judging Egypt, but he's really talking to Israel here through this oracle. And really through that, it's like, what does that have to do with us? We don't make political alliances. Well, what do you think it has to do with you? No, you're not in a government. You're not making political alliances. But the question in front of you when you read that is, what am I relying on? What am I trusting in in my life? We know that all roads in the Bible lead to Jesus. The idea is that you would learn to trust in him and to put your trust in him. Jeremiah 9, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. So the word lean isn't found there, but you know that that's what Jeremiah is talking about. You know, you have certain attributes that you're good at your education, your intelligence, your money, your whatever. Don't boast in those things, which equals don't rely on them. Don't let them captivate your mind. Don't be impressed with them. But boast in the Lord. That's what Jeremiah is. Same thing. What are you uh, relying on? The man and woman of faith rest peaceful in the Lord. Psalm 4.8, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
It's a beautiful picture of reliance. When I go to sleep, I sleep well, says the psalmist, because I'm trusting in God. I just put myself in his hands. Again, Psalm 27.3, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. So you translate that over, though this or that or the other that I might fear in my life happen to me, I will not be afraid because I'm trusting in God. That kind of language. God works then to teach his people to trust him. When Israel is trapped by Pharaoh's army uh, against the Red Sea with no possible escape, they cried out to the Lord who spoke through Moses saying, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What a great picture that is. You don't have to do anything. Just don't run away. (laughs) Stand by the Red Sea and watch what I'm going to do. Just stand there. And after Israel safely crossed the Red Sea with water like a great wall to the right and the left, The mighty Egyptian army was subsequently drowned. Then the nation had a solid basis for trusting in the Lord forever. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, listen, and they put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. See that? So when they saw what God did, they trusted in God. That's the language uh, of Exodus. We're going to go over some of these things in the sermon today as well. Now, what is the greatest enemy of genuine faith? The greatest idol that every human being has, the Bible would call self-reliance. Self-reliance. We already covered it a little bit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Self-reliance. Let me stop here before I go into the evidence here. Why, why would I make that assertion? This is the single greatest challenge to genuine biblical faith. Self-reliance. And you mentioned pride, so there's evidence of pride there. Self-reliance is, is a proud state. Anyone else? Self-reliance, the single greatest challenge to saving faith. I think it's what sort of dictates your decisions. When you, when, when you think that you're the, the one in charge or you're the one that has the most at stake to, to lose, you, you make decisions based on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, Jesus is going to say in the sermon today, uh, he's going to warn the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, the yeast, we find out from Matthew 16, is their teaching. What's the single greatest flaw in the Pharisees' religion? What would you say is their core flaw? That you can save yourself. Yeah. The self, self-righteousness. I think self-righteousness and self-reliance are pretty much equivalent when it comes to religion, when it comes to that vertical relationship with God. I am righteous enough. And so how does Jesus factor into that? He doesn't. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you're not sick, I'm not here for you. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance, and I came to shed my blood for them. Now, if you don't think you need that, I'm not for you. But you'll find out on Judgment Day. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty plain. What's he saying about the Pharisees' righteousness? It's insufficient. It's insufficient. You're not going to heaven with it. It's not enough. And we know it's infinitely not enough. It's not even close. They're not even close. They're talking about perfect righteousness, absolute total conformity to God. And we don't have it. So self-reliance is a very, very great challenge. It's the number one idol God came, came to fight. Now, we have a picture of it in Deuteronomy 1, uh, lived out in Israel's history. 
You remember how they sent out the 12 spies? And the, the spies went out, and again, we're going to cover this in the sermon, so you get this twice today. But the, the spies go out, and they come back with a good report about the land physically, but a problem. And the problem was the people who lived in the land are tall. They're big, strong, militarily strong. And the 10 spies spread a bad report about the land, saying the land devours its inhabitants. In other words, it can devour us. And they have cities with walls up to the sky. And we look like grasshoppers to the people of the land. And we thought that way ourselves. And so they said, we better go back to Egypt. We're not going to win. They forgot God, who had basically carried them, says in Deuteronomy, as a father carries his son. They forgot about God. They forgot about the ten plagues. They forgot about the Red Sea crossing. And they thought that the Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites and all that were going to beat them. Uh, and so God was very angry at them and said, fine, you're not going in. But the children that you were so afraid would die and all that, they'll go in your place. So you turn around and you go in the desert. And he judged them at that moment. So you will not go in. Then they changed their mind right there on the spot. Said, no, 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 sorry. We'll go. And it says in Deuteronomy 1, then each of you put on his armor, thinking it easy to go into the hill country. Oh, that's interesting. What a change of heart they've had. Where did that come from? And what does that mean, thinking it easy to go in the hill country, as they're putting on their armor? What does that mean, thinking it easy to go in the hill country? Easier to defeat those guys in the hills rather than the ones in the city. Yeah, but when it comes to the battle, how do they think they're going to do? We got this. We got this. But here's the amazing thing. All right, they go up, they get whooped. And they get chased like as if by hornets. And they came down and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention. He is absolutely not interested in their tears. He told them not to go, because I will not go with you. Now here's the thing, what's interesting is both of the states, mental states, were the same. It's, it's just two sides of the same coin. And the coin is self-reliance. See that? In the first case, you look out and you say, you see the challenge and you look inward and you do not find the resources and you despair. Despair. In the second case, you look out and you see the challenge and you think, hey, I got this. And that's arrogance. And arrogance and despair are just two sides of the same coin. And the coin is self-reliance. If instead you look at the challenge and you say, I don't have this, but God does. And God will help me. And he will enable me That's what the Lord wants. He wants us to trust in Him. Now, this is in the sermon. I'm not going to elaborate, but I'll give you guys two, two chances at the same passage. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Can someone read that for us? 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our hearts, uh, we felt uh, the sentence of death. 
this happens that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What an incredible statement there. This whole trial we had in Asia, arrested probably, imprisoned, beaten, thought they were going to get executed. The whole trial was orchestrated, Paul says, orchestrated by God to teach us, me, Paul would say, a lesson. And what was the lesson? Don't rely on yourself, but on God. But that's not all he says. On God who raises the dead. Now why does he add that extra phrase? Because that's the finish line of this whole thing. The resurrection from the dead is the end of our salvation. So here's one I want to ask you. What is your strategy for raising yourself from the dead? What are you going to do? That's a big deal now. What are your plans to raise yourself from the, from the dead, to get yourself up out of the grave? What are your plans for that whole thing? That's a big deal. It's coming. It's an absurd question. You have no power. So why would you then not rely on God for the whole thing? That's Paul's point. And so God brings the trials, Paul says, brings the suffering to teach us this important lesson. You cannot save yourself. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. You have to trust in God. That's the point. To learn to rely on God and on Christ. Second Corinthians is teaching the same thing. We don't have time. I'm actually way behind schedule here. All right, so let's, let's pick, up, pick up the pace. The point is that Christ is the focal point. That God sent Christ to be the focus of our faith. The focus of our reliance. That we'd realize this is how we say, I can't save myself. I'm trusting in Jesus. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture. Holy. Let no other trust in truth. What do those words mean to you? That's an interesting poetical expression. Venture on him. We don't really speak like that anymore. What does that word venture mean? Okay. <laughs> One image, all right. <laughs> the great poker game of life, all right. I, I think setting out. Look kind of like a bridge. Step out on him and put your whole weight. Venture wholly. I don't have a plan B. There is no plan B when it comes to Jesus, all right? There is no other Savior. If he doesn't work, you will not be saved, but he will work. So venture on, venture holy, and let no other trust intrude. What does that word intrude mean to you? Interfere. Interfere. It doesn't belong there. Yeah. I thought years ago of a weird illustration, and I'm going to roll it out for you guys. Um, imagine if you saw a husband and wife like at a Christmas party, and, and they, they hug each other, and they're having a, a moment together, and you kind of get in there. You kind of <laughs> just want to be in, included. What, what do you think everyone in the room, including the husband and wife, would think about that moment? Be like, that's, that's weird, all right? <laughs> that's, that's a bad moment. Well, that's the image I have here. It's the soul and Christ together. Anything else wanting in on that whole thing, that's wrong. Let no other trust intrude. It's just you and Christ. That's it. That's the image we have here. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I like everything you're saying. I'm just wondering if there might be some, like, qualification or uh, outworking 
that needs to be fleshed out or clarified a little bit, which is like when we say we trust or depend only on the Lord, in our society nowadays, there's a danger there, which is it's just it's just me and the Lord. And I think an important thing is we also must trust one another, and maybe you just see it as like an outworking, but like an important sign, it seems to me, of Christian maturity is not just depending on the Lord, but depending on one another. So for example, you think of Adam in the garden, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I think it would be right to say he depended on Eve, he relied on Eve to carry out the task God gave him. And if he would have said to God, look God, it's just me and you, I let no other trust intrude, you know, God would have said, you're nuts, because I, will, I am commanding you to trust one another, you must. And then Paul talking about the body of Christ and how you should not give up meeting together, and then all that language. I think that in our society today, like depending on other Christians, that's a level of a way of depending on the Lord that I think is, is important. Absolutely. I totally agree. I, I think you can make the same argument saying, I don't know, I'm not, not going to let Bible reading intrude. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, um, that's a means of grace. Coming to church is a means of grace. This BFL class, I hope, is a means of grace. But here's what I said at a funeral yesterday, literally. Uh, a beloved uh, father had died, and there's appropriate grief. And the way I've, years ago I've seen it as, as really godly, special people in our lives are conduits or pipelines of grace from God. They're means of grace to us. And God in his wisdom at death shuts it off. And no new conduits, although memories can help us, but I mean just in the image. That conduit's done, but the, the reservoir of grace is still there. And there are other pipelines that will be open. So that's how I would answer it. So if somebody were to say that, they haven't understood the pipelines or the means of grace, including your, a godly spouse, something like that. That's very good. Thank you. But ultimately, you're trusting in Christ. I have to move on. Uh, I would say probably the number one verse, you can read the other details here. Number one verse I would give this is John 15, 5. If you could look ahead in your handout, find it, and someone read it for us. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so how is that a picture of reliance? Reliance on Christ. I am the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's everything. He is your source. And if you're connected to him, abiding in him, dwelling in him, remaining in him, you're, you're alive. He's everything. And uh, he is wanting to be the focal point. He's the consummation of all of these themes that we've been talking about. Christ is it. He is the vine. All right, so now let's step back to the, the overall work we're doing here. A sanctified person or a spiritually mature person knows this. They just know. They can't do anything apart from Jesus. They wouldn't try to. And they're going to be bringing Jesus in, as it were, through prayer, through meditation, throughout the day, praying without ceasing, aware, 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 aware of Jesus. That's what I think abiding is. You're just aware of his presence, aware of the need to talk to him, that he is the king, he is your savior, he is the, your counselor through the spirit. He is what you need. So what I'm saying is in this faith section, a faith-filled person trusts in, relies in Jesus. And more and more, not less and less as you go on, more and more, a sense of that, okay? Let's go on to the next one, reception of spiritual guidance. Um, the Holy Spirit continually guides us in our internal journey of holiness. Um, Isaiah 35, 8, a highway will be there, will be called, called a way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, it will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. You think of this beautiful picture of a highway. We're on a highway to heaven. Where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. We're journeying somewhere. 
Um, and I like this verse also in Isaiah. Whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. That's a strong sense of guidance, isn't it? You just know what to do. You know where to go. You're not, and Jesus says it beautifully. It's not in your handout, but I love this verse. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So that the image there, the way I, I picture it is like, we don't know what to do. We, we're, we're, we have no resources. We have no strength, no protection. That's what he means when he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I will, I will provide for you. And so there's that sense of, of his presence in our lives and a sense of guidance. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So you, you are hearing the voice of the Lord. Or again, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. There's this leadership theme, this guidance where do I go? What do I do? You'll know. You're not left shooting in the dark. Like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to do in this situation. That's just not true. So God guides us. Now, mostly he guides us by scripture. Scripture is God's clearest guidance. He never guides apart from the truths of scripture or contrary to scripture. All right? Never. So your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's guidance language. I know what to do because of God's scripture. Right? Because I read the Bible, I know what life is about. I know what to do with my life. That's that guidance. But also our obedience. Someone read John 14, 21, if you would. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I, too, will love him and show myself to him. So that word show is also translated in other versions, manifest or disclose. So the idea is a revelation of myself to him, and that would include uh, my purposes, uh, my plans, what I'm doing in the world. What's interesting about John 14, 21 is there's a dual combination of you have to have his commands, his word, and what? There's another part. Whoever has my commands and? Obeys. Obeys them. Oh, is that important? It is. Look, if you get a bunch of Bible teaching and you cast it off, it's not doing you any good. But if you hear God speak to you and then put into practice the things he's told you to do, guess what? He'll give you more. So the more obedient you are, the more you're going to know what to do. The more disobedient you are, the more you're going to be like you're an orphan in the world. We'll know what to do. So your obedience actually sharpens your hearing. It sharpens your ability to discern. The more disobedient you are, the more confused you're going to be in life. You won't know what to do. So John 14, 21 is the key. It's a combination. You've got to have that Bible intake. You've got to keep taking in the Word. But then you've got to have that second part. And the second part is obedience. Now, I know we're not going to perfectly obey. Guess what? We're also not going to perfectly know what to do. <laughs> it's like, well, are we shooting? Where we're aiming for perfection. All right. So the more we can, you, you're, you're told what to do. God tells you what to do. Go do it. Don't make excuses. Go be obedient. And then what's going to happen? The more you do that, things will just get clearer, clearer and clearer. You're just going to be led and you'll know what to do with your life. There are other ways that God um, guides. He guides by providence. Uh, the language sometimes of open doors. 
You know, Paul talked about that. A great, a great door of opportunity is open for me for ministry. An open door is, is a, a Paul's language of providential circumstances that line up. I have a, a chance to do something here, an, an open door. So providence, he does it by, uh, by counselors, as we were just talking about. Yes, it's not just me and the Lord, but God does bring counselors into our lives. And we ask advice. Hey, I'm thinking about changing my career. Really? It's a big move. What, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking this and that, so you have that conversation. And, and you've got wise counselors, men and women in your life who, have, who are wise people, and they listen. And they can tell you if you're chasing a fantasy or if they say, hey, this could be a, a major significant move that God's doing in your life. Either way, but wise counselors. Uh, he guides us this way. And then that internal still small voice we talk about sometimes where uh, God will speak. And I believe in that. I believe that God does speak to us. My sheep hear my voice. But it's in conjunction with these other things. It's not, it's not independent. It's, it's you are hearing God speak to you personally, quietly, letting you know what to do. And you need that. You know, I, I give the illustration of when um, the search committee uh, uh, effectively offered me the opportunity to come and preach in view of a call here. Um, you know, it's the congregation's task, but the search committee had decided I was the person if I wanted to come. And so they needed to know if I was coming or not. I needed to know what God wanted me to do. I mean, don't you think? It's like, you know, you should ask me. <laughs> you know, the Lord would say, ask me. So I was in my PhD office at Southern Seminary, and I knelt down and I said, Lord, do you want me to go to Louisville and preach in view of a call? Yes or no? <laughs> I mean, is that an invalid moment? I, I, some people are like, I don't, I don't trust that. You know, it's like, well, what else are you going to do? Skip that step? I would say don't skip that step. Ask him. Say, Lord, please tell me what to do. And I think that's James 1, 2 through 4. If anyone lacks wisdom, you should do what? Ask God and believe that he's going to tell you what to do. But it's in conjunction with the others. Never contrary to God's word, never contrary to wise counsel and all that. It all fits together. That's guidance. Any questions? That's the end of the faith section. We've got 17 minutes to do the entire character section. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I don't know what we're going to do. By the way, we're not meeting for three weeks. The next BFL will be three weeks from today. So we're missing two Sundays and then coming back again for one last time. So in that time, you can read the whole book, Infinite Journey, and it can be ready. You won't have to even come to the BFL class. So three weeks from now. But I'll get as far as I can now with character. Character, all right? Character, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I think two weeks ago or last week, is not necessarily a biblical word. I think sometimes translations use it, but heart is. So heart. So character equals heart, and heart is that inner nature. That inner nature conformed to Christ. Heart. All right? And five areas. Affection, what you love and what you hate. Desire, which is what you seek. The will, what you choose and what you reject. Thought, what you think about. And then emotion, what you choose, or what you feel, sorry. Now, all of those circumstantially add up to what I call virtues, what you are in any situation. What kind of person are you? So that's all your internal nature. How do we describe this person? But I, I'm just saying there are different circumstances. A clear example of that would be rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Do you know what to do in this situation? Do you know how to deal with this person who's going through this trial or not? 
So that's just virtues. What kind of person are you are are you in different circumstances? So that's it. But let's look at the first five, which is affection, desire, will, thought, and emotion. Let's start with affection. What you love and what you hate. <coughs> the greatest commandment in the Bible, Jesus said, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. As I said a few minutes ago, and I think it's absolutely true, the core of your being, that at the center of your being you would love God forever. That's what salvation is all about. Sin was the ultimate intrusion. We talked earlier about intruding. Sin got in the way of that. Jesus came to heal that intrusion and get it out of the way so that we could go back then to what we were meant to be and to do, and that is to love God. It's the core of everything, that we would love him as, as a dutiful son or daughter loves a, a loving father, that father-son relationship, or as a, a loyal subject loves a virtuous king, <coughs> or ultimately the spouse language, the bride and bridegroom language. It's very strong in, in Ezekiel. It's very strong also in Revelation 21. There's a, this bride. The, the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. That's all about love. That's all love language. That we would love God. And the second commandment is not as important, but it's very much like it. Love your neighbors yourself. So that's the core of our faith, is a heart of love. So um, one of the most significant books I've ever read is Jonathan Edwards' Treatise on Religious Affections. He wrote it in view of the First Great Awakening. He's trying to define a genuine work of God and what is the genuine aspect of religion. If we're looking at Christianity, what is it ultimately all about? No one was better at that kind of thinking than Jonathan Edwards. And he said that the human soul is endowed with God by two with, with two capacities. First, the ability to comprehend the world, physical and spiritual, to understand its nature, to study it and evaluate it and comprehend it. And secondly, to be attracted to or repulsed from the things it studies to a greater or less degree. So putting it in simple language, you evaluate the stuff around you in God's world, and then you like it or love it, or you dislike it or hate it. That's what you do. You're made for that, that evaluation and attraction. So Edwards didn't do this, but I did. I put this thing into a geeky number line, okay? <laughs> what I call the number line of affection. All right, just because that's who I am. Now, I don't, it's not who, Ed, Edwards put it all in words, all right, when he said as liking or loving or as disliking or hating. That's how he put it. But I was like, that kind of seems like positive or negative. And I started thinking about the number line, right? And it just worked. And, and I think it, it works for me. If you guys aren't number people, just bear with me. If you're more poetical, you can write a poem about this or something like that. But the idea of greater or less degree, that's what led me to that number line. So, you know, greater degree would be from zero up, stronger and stronger. On the positive side, that would be as liking or loving. And then the negative side of the number line, that would be as disliking or hating. Does that make sense? So then zero would be perfect indifference. Couldn't care less either way. I believe that's absolutely impossible the more information you have about something. Like if I told you I'm thinking about something right now, 
I want to ask you, do you like it or dislike it? <laughs> what I'm thinking about. Nathan Ma, what do you think? I like it. You like it? <laughs> <laughs> See, you're disproving. So you're like, no, perfect indifference is not impossible. Anyway. I'm going to need to know more. <laughs> you want more? I need more information. All right. Don't like that. Seafood. Seafood. I was not thinking about seafood. Thank you. Do you like it? He doesn't like it either. All right. I'm a kindred spirit. Um, yeah. All right. So the, the point is, the more the more you know about something, your heart's going to start to move. Can't even necessarily control it. Uh, some of you are sports fans. Have you ever watched a bowl game in which you didn't know either team? I've done that. I don't know why. I know. What am I watching this game for? I don't know either of the teams. I, my wife and I were at a Mexican restaurant last night, and there was a, a game on, and one of the teams was Rice. Who are they? Is that a team? Rice. University of Houston. Okay. And who do they play? None of you knows. Well, I was watching, and I didn't care less who won. But I remember the more it went on, I started to care. <laughs> it's just what happens. I don't know why. I don't know how that happens. But the more I'm watching the game, I start to kind of like one of the teams a little more. Um, that's just what happens, and, and so, but that, that absolutely happens the more immersed you are in relationships. You get to know people. You have relationships, and then your heart starts to move. And everything there is in the universe is somewhere on that number line of affection, as liking or loving, as disliking or hating, everything. Now, along with this kind of geeky analogy, where should God be on a Christian's number line of affection? Okay, on the number line though. Infinity. What side? The right. the right side, the positive side. What would you call a created thing that's further to the right beyond God in someone's estimation? An idol. An idol. That's definition, almost a clinical definition of an idol. It's a created thing you love more than God. All right, so that's the whole idea here. A Christian loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and more and more. Because here's the thing, this thing's dynamic. Is it possible to love Christ more five years from now than you do right now? Yeah, that's what sanctification's about. This should be moving. Is there anyone that would say, I love Jesus enough? No one would say that. We, we want to love him more. Conversely, are there any things that we should hate? Or should we just be positive about everything? No, there's definitely things that we should hate because it says of Jesus in Hebrews 1.8, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So you have to do both. Do we hate wickedness enough? No one would make that statement either. No one hates sin enough. So sanctification is to take what you love and should love and love it more. To take what you should hate and hate it even more. That's what we're talking about. Some things aren't going to move. They don't need to move. They're amoral things. You just you, you like them or dislike them. It's okay. It's not a thing. All right? But that's what affection's all, all about. And there are many things that we should love, uh, not just Christ. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we love them enough? We do not. Can we love them more? We can. And will we? Yes, we will. And that's the beauty of it. That's what we're, we're talking about with love. Secondly, desire. Desire has to do with what you seek. It's something you want but don't have. And the Christian life is a life of ardent desires. 
what would you think about someone that just had no desire in life at all? They didn't desire anything, didn't want anything. A weird person. I would think that they were un unwell, mentally unwell. They've lost the will to live. A lost a desire. We should want things. God wants things. God desires things for us that we don't have yet. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am, that they might see my glory. That's John 17. Does Jesus have that? No. Not for all the elect. And he continues to pray that, Father, I want the elect to be with me where I am and that they might see my glory. That's an amazing statement. And he's going to keep wanting that and wanting that in every individual case until it's fulfilled. He just keeps wanting. So there are things God wants and doesn't have yet. We also should have a whole array of desires. We should be filled with desires. Sometimes Paul uses even the word ambition, right? Is ambition a good thing or bad thing? It's like, well, you got to tell me what you're ambitious for. If it's a worldly thing, then it's bad. If your ambition is to get rich, there's specific biblical warnings against it. That you'll pierce your soul with many a penny. You should not want to get worldly rich. Should you want to be more righteous than you are? Yes. Should you want the gospel to get to unreached people groups? Yes. Paul wanted to be a vehicle whereby that happened. It's always been my ambition that, Christ, that I would preach the gospel where Christ was not named so I wouldn't be building on somebody else's foundation. That's a godly ambition. Not everybody needs that ambition. There are different callings in life. But there are ambitions. You, you should be ambitious for heaven. You should be ambitious to, to be as rich as you possibly can in good works on Judgment Day. You want to have as many good works as you can. Not a few. Many. You want to have a lot of gold, silver, costly stones credited to your account. You should want to be, you should store up treasure in heaven. And a lot, not a little. You want to make the most of every day for the glory of God. Ambition. So that's desire. And so there's, there's just a lot of good things in here about desire. But um, probably the number one thing is, is Paul's statement in Philippians 3. Uh, someone read Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Maybe next page on your handout. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is so filled with godly desire in Paul. Do you see that? It's like I, the central desire, which I've highlighted for you there, is this. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. And you think about who Paul was when he wrote those words. I don't think there was anybody alive on earth, walking on earth, that knew Christ better than Paul. But the more he knew him, the more he wanted to know him. And I think that's amazing, that you would say, I want to know Christ better five years from now than I do now. I really do. I want whatever it takes, suffering, service, whatever, I want to know Jesus better than I do. That's the desire. And there are many other desires besides. Now, one thing that I've noticed is, Prayer 
is one of God's number one ways to stoke your desires. For example, let's say you find out that a Christian brother or sister has just been diagnosed with cancer and they're about to begin a series of painful therapies. How should you respond to that? What should you be feeling about that? Okay. Are there any desires you might have for that circumstance? What desire? Eileen, what, what, would, what would be a desire? We, might, we don't want healing. Should we also desire that they would walk well through the trial and learn whatever God has for them? Yeah. Now here's my question. Do you think that those desires we have for the friend are strong enough? Or could they be stronger? All right, all right, I acknowledge. I could want it more than I do. I could want it as though it were happening to me. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, right? I want to care as if it were happening to me, but I don't. Being honest, I don't. The question is, how can I care more? Don't you think prayer is one of the answers to that? So I got, I got this picture in here that Tom put in there. Tom put in this color picture. This is pretty cool. So this is the blacksmith, like at Williamsburg or something like that. You take a piece of cold, black, cold, black, hard iron, and you stick it in the coals, and you get the bellows going. You've probably seen these blacksmiths working. And after a while, it's glowing hot, right? It's a very complex physics issue of why it gives off light. I never realized it was Albert Einstein that talked about what's going on. How does black iron generate light? interesting question. It's like, I never really thought about that before. Well, think about it. <laughs> How does a black hunk of iron generate light? But at any rate, it generates it when it gets hot. And, and my feeling is this is a picture for me of prayer. When I pray and pray and pray and pray for something, guess what? I care more. I care more. So that's one of the things we do in the body of Christ. You pray for other people's things as though it were happening to you, and we learn to care more. All right, will. What you choose and what you reject. Okay. So now we come to the topic of free will. Now in my ordering here, notice in the character section, what two attributes did I put before will? Affection and desire. I believe that affection and desire precede will. So that your choosing is a servant of what you love and what you hate what you desire. What are your thoughts on that? That you choose what you love. Would you agree? Let me give you a restaurant menu. Go ahead. Well, I would say, I guess it seems like you're influenced by what your desires and experiences are, but they're, they, uh, your choices are not determined by them. Yeah, you have to make that, that choice. but They're not fully determined by something outside of you. They're influenced, but not determined. Yeah, but you have, you have that, that you, you pull it, but on what basis? You always, I'm asking that question, on what basis did you make that choice? So we've, we've joked, so Ben just joked about my, my whole seafood thing. So um, I said to Christy last night, I said, what would you think if I ordered the fish tacos today, you know, at the Mexican? She didn't, she just didn't play games with me. We've been married 34 years, like she just kept reading the menu. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going there, I know you're not gonna do it. I said, this could be a whole new, a whole new direction in my life here. She just kept studying the menu, didn't have anything to say. But, but here's the thing. Um, I would not do that because I don't like it. I don't make the choice because I don't like that. I choose things I like. And this is normal, just as normal life. 
you know, unless you're doing a thought experiment or you're trying to make a joke or something like that, when you are handed a menu and then the server comes and says whatever, what you, what you order, what precedes that is what you like, okay? Um, and all the other things you didn't, all right, now here's another scenario. If you go to uh, a home and they don't know you and the, the hostess is a very big seafood lover and serves me, for example, seafood, and this happened in Japan a lot, what do you think I'm going to do when that's served to me? Eat it. I'm going to eat it, but that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to eat it happily. I'm going to express gratitude. I'm not going to say, actually, you probably didn't know this about me, but blah, blah. no, I'm not doing any of that. Why am I not telling her how I actually feel about seafood? Because your desire to please her is ranked higher than your anti-diet. So in the end, I'm still doing what I like, what I love. I'm making choices based on what I like. It's just it's an array or a matrix. It's more complex, frankly, than we can possibly imagine. It's not simple. But I think Edwards is right. It was Edwards that pointed this out in his treatise on the freedom of the will. The will is a servant of the heart, and you're going to make choices based on what you like slash love or what you dislike slash hate. It is complex, etc. So fundamentally, that's the issue. When somebody asks me if I believe in free will, I just say, free from what? You just need to specify, what are we talking about? It's not some floating thing that goes around. It is tied to the desires. Beyond that, new birth gives a new heart, new heart and new desires. Ezekiel 36, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in it, in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's a powerful statement. So I will heal. Basically, I look on it as therapy. I will heal your heart and you will make choices as you should. Now, I'm going to finish this one thing. The ultimate picture for me of a healthy use of the will is Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. Remember how the Father reveals the cup to Jesus. Jesus says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But that's not all he says. What else does he say? Yes, not my will, but yours be done. Now, we should not imagine thereby it was not Christ's will to go to the cross. It was. What is he saying? This is hard. Drinking this cup is very, very difficult. It runs contrary to self-preservation runs contrary to everything else, every fiber of my being, except there is a higher call here. For the joy that's set before me, I will drink this cup. See what I'm saying? So that's, I think, the best use of the Christian's will. When things are hard, if God's calling you to do it anyway, you can see like Jesus did in Gethsemane, a greater good and a willingness to suffer. And so you do that in every case. That's the healing of the will. And then let's just do... Uh, well, no. Sorry, we'll pick this up three weeks from now. Thought Life. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.